Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Well, it's a sunny fall day, and we're going to start off right away and get right into our list of six. Well, Hollister, one quick thing that I think you'll really enjoy before we do our list of six. I was going through our comments this week from our listeners, and there's one I think you're going to totally appreciate from Christophe in Paris, who listened to uh, last week's podcast where we were discussing Black Mirror, (laughs) and this is what he has to say. Okay, ready? Hollister, you are a trip. <laughs> I didn't, wait, I didn't, where did you post this? Caps, I, which, did you take it down before I could respond? Hollister, <laughs> you are a trip. You can use my Uber account. <laughs> and he put a little smiley face. I just love that. Christophe from Paris, thank you. Uh, thank you, yeah, thank you. Thanks, I think. Made my day. Thanks, I think. Is, hashtag thanks, I think means I'm not sure whether you meant that tongue in cheek or not. But you know what? I am going to get my rating up, so we don't want to talk about that anymore. But if we're going to start with some comments, um, Diane from North Carolina, she she went to see certain women after we after she listened to our podcast, and here's what she said: I like the film Certain Women, but might have been frustrated as you were had I not listened to the podcast. My expectations were altered. My friend and I agreed it is very much about isolation about obsession as well. Michelle Williams' character obsessed with the sandstone. The two other characters were obsessed upon. I thought that was really cool, actually. That's very good. And you know, as they say, the secret to happiness is lower expectations. Well, the secret to happiness is a high Uber rating. So (laughs) what you're talking about? I'm going to put you in touch with Christoph. Okay, so (laughs) back to our list of six. Thanks again to Melissa Cohn.Mortgage for uh, supporting us and sponsoring it. And this week, you should do the intro because you're the one who's a lawyer, and I'm just a layman who's probably going to get sued every single five minutes moving forward, but go ahead. <laughs> well, you came up with the category. I thought it was a great one. Our six favorite courtroom movies. Okay, I'm going to start with an oldie, but goodie, Adam's Rib from 1949. Oh, God. Do we have to go back Spencer that Spencer Tracy. Yes, uh-huh. with Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn, because to have a really riveting courtroom case, you need two equal adversaries on either side of the equation. And Hepburn and Tracy play a husband and wife on opposite sides of a case where a woman's accused of murdering her husband. Wait, does Hepburn play uh, a lawyer? Yes. Okay, they didn't have lawyers in the 50s that were women. Didn't happen. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was at Harvard in the early 50s and then switched over to Columbia. Well, you know, I'm sure I'm wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sue me. <laughs> but it was written by a real-life husband and wife team, Garson Kanan huh. and Ruth Gordon, who I'm sure you remember from Harold and Maude. Uh, okay, here we go. It's my turn. <laughs> okay. My turn. All right, I'm going to go back to my earliest one, too. I, of course, had to start with To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yes. I know that's yeah, one of your favorite really, movies. Yeah, yeah, not really much to say about that other than... Our hour-long podcast that we did before yeah. about the whole movie. <laughs> that's true. You can go listen to our <laughs> podcast. But also, it's clearly one of the finest courtroom films ever made, no question. I mean, I think everybody would agree with that. And one of the reasons is that you see the events inside the courtroom from so many points of view. The defendant is not guilty. But somebody in this courtroom is. Now, gentlemen, in this country, our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men 
are created equal. Okay, the best point of view in that courtroom is Scout. This innocence changing to uh, to a grown-up understanding of things are not always what they seem. So for me, To Kill a Mockingbird certainly would be one of my top choices. It is weird when you think back to that, that women weren't yet allowed on juries. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, what's your next one? Okay, I'm moving to 1996 to Primal Fear. Or as my sister misspoke when ordering the tickets, Primal, primal Fear. I Gear. Would, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> With Richard Gere and Laura Linney. And I thought this was really a breakout role for Ed Norton, who was nominated for an Oscar. I will never forget him testifying on the stand. Well, for me, his finest moment in that film is inside the cell block when, when uh, Richard Gere realizes what's going down. Mm-hmm. I, 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 again, not to be a, a, a spoiler, because if you haven't seen Primal Fear, I totally get why it's right up there. You go, girl. It's a great movie. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so I'm going to go with Ghosts of Mississippi. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, you know, one of Alec Baldwin's best, and surely one of Whoopi's best. You know, I, I love this film. I love the justice of it. I love the truth. There's nothing better for me when truth comes to film. And... Um, you know, it's a story of civil rights leader who was assassinated and it took 30 years to bring it to justice. And it really is mind blowing. And Whoopi Goldberg, for sure, her best role. Absolutely amazing. And I think Alec Baldwin really, really nailed it. And his Southern accent, by the way, is so, it's sublime. It's really, really good. So you go, Alec, and I'm going to go with Ghosts of Mississippi. Now, did you think Whoopi Goldberg was even better in that than she was in The Color Purple? I did, yeah. Well, no, totally different roles. Uh, No, you know what? You're right. Okay, you win. Color Purple, she's better, but she's very, very good in this. You know, you're an Alec Baldwin fan. I am. I am. Are you kidding? Yeah. Okay, well, seeing that I only have one left, I would like to have thought that I would have gone with 12 Angry Men or some classic, (laughs) but I'm not. I'm going with one that I thoroughly enjoyed, Suspect, from 1987. It's another old one with Cher as a public defender, Dennis Quaid as the congressional advisor who ends up on her jury, and it was one of the first roles I ever saw Liam Neeson in, where he plays the mute homeless man who's Cher's um, client. So it starts out that Judge commits suicide, his secretary's found murdered. I loved that movie. You know what's funny about this is I, for some obscure reason, set it aside on my watch list. Mm-hmm. And I, every time I go into my watch list, I skip over it. And it always shows up as the first thing on there. I'm going to watch it now that you've recommended it. I never saw it. Okay, I am going to end this series with Philadelphia. I got to go with Philadelphia, Tom Hanks, who I am not a fan of and who I've totally, totally trashed so many times. Great role for him. And Denzel Washington, you know, (laughs) the two of them together in this are, are absolutely amazing. And it's, again, based on a true story. So for me, the courtroom dramas that really I seem to, you know, be be drawn to are things that actually happened. So there you go. Two out of my three were reenactments of real life situations. So I liked the Bruce Springsteen song from Philadelphia. Gonna leave me wasting away in the streets of Philadelphia. 
Can I just tag on a little thing at the end? Yes, because I want to give an honorable mention. I know I'm only allowed three, but... Okay, I know that's what I have too. Okay, so here's my honorable mention for the best court scene ever. It's got to be Nicholson and Cruz, and you don't want the truth. Oh, you can't handle the truth. Written by your guy, Aaron Sorkin. Of course it was written by Aaron Sorkin, the best courtroom scene ever. It has to be written by... But let's talk about the delivery too. Nicholson's delivery... And also Tom Cruise. You know, Tom Cruise, he tends to, in my mind, sort of overact in a way that millennials do, you know, with great drama. Uh, and But in this particular moment in time, I thought he was very, very good. So that's my honorable mention. What's yours? I just remember Demi Moore's Princess Leia-like hair. But, okay, my honorable mention, when I was in law school, <laughs> my evidence professor used to start five minutes of every evidence class with a clip from this movie, my cousin Vinny. Oh, Our okay, professor was totally convinced. If you want to learn more about how the rules of evidence work, just watch my cousin Vinny. It teaches you how to qualify an expert. And of course, Marissa Tomei, who I have always loved, she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Ms. Vito, please answer the question Does the defense's case hold water? No. The defense is wrong. Are you sure? I'm positive. And it's one of the few times, really, that they gave it to a comedic role. She was fantastic Mm. in that movie. She was. She was. Mm -hmm. She was. All right, so that wraps up this week's list of six. Uh, And if you have any to add, let us know. I was really surprised at how many came to my mind. I had a lot more I could have mentioned, which I'm not going to because I'm going to stick to my, you know, that I only have three to offer. So I'm going to stick with what I chose. But I was surprised how many films there were that I could have pulled out I think a courtroom always makes a very great dramatic setting because of the adversarial system. It's like the modern day gladiators where you see them, the battle of minds. It's very riveting I agree. I totally agree. So, all right, now let's move on to, we're only going to do one this week because it's 10 episodes. It dropped into Netflix, The Crown. I have seen three great monarchies brought down through their failure to separate personal indulgences from duty. You must not allow yourself to make similar mistakes. The Crown must win. Must always win. I don't know even where to begin other than to say, I don't know if you begin with Claire Foy's performance or whether you begin with, I think it makes Downton Abbey look like an elementary school performance versus this. You know, it's just one of the best things I've seen since John Adams, which I think is really interesting because one's about the monarchy John Adams and one's re- about democracy. <laughs> and now for the first time since then, I will say that watching history through the eye, and I'm sure it's jaded eyes. I get that. I get that. I get that. But watching history unfold this way is just incredible. So what say you? The production values were amazingly high. The clothes, the rituals, the architecture, the pomp and circumstance, the links they went to, it's very, very well done. But before you totally draw a comparison to Downton Abbey, (laughs) there is something about Downton Abbey that I miss in this. 
And that's the downstairs. The downstairs. I mean, the fact that her people never spoke. That yes, it's very much from the upstairs point of view. I mean, it is yeah, named well, that works the for crown. Me. <laughs> I knew it would work for you, but it's so funny because you get so sucked into the drama going on within the royal family, and then you cut to Queen Elizabeth in Nairobi talking about how before the Brits got there, it was just a land of of savages. And Princess Margaret, you know, she's on her own tour talking about the primitives. And I was like, okay, I can't say at heart I am a fan of imperialism, but watching the show, it is riveting. Okay, what do you think of Foy's performance? If Queen Elizabeth had any ability to move her face into those types of empathetic and concerned and thoughtful signs, she would be much more beloved. I mean, I know she's beloved, but she would be a much bigger force than, than ever before. Um, I loved Claire Foy's performance, but uh, not for those reasons. I thought she really nailed the restraint of the queen where everyone keeps saying you can't act like a human being and you have to do nothing and you represent the monarchy. The less you do, the less you say, or think or feel or breathe or exist, the better. But where does that leave me? You know, I've never been a fan. You know, I I am somebody who came, you know, to my 30s during Princess Di's reign of terror over there. And I had always, you know, my my leanings were always toward Princess Di's. You know, this woman is just cold as ice and she didn't come out when she died. And, you know, what was she doing with those grandkids? And Princess um, Di who took Prince Charles from her sister. Okay, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I think her sister was happy to give him up. But anyway... (laughs) um, I, I've never been a fan. And for the first time, I recognize, and it's so important that, to, you know, that, that old adage of until you walk in somebody else's shoes, you have no idea what they're going through. I really, really had a sense of how very much she gives up to be the queen and how very seriously she takes it in a way that is just truly incredible, you know? Yes. And when you talk about a monarchy that goes back a thousand years, you realize it really is a big responsibility. One, she wasn't born expecting she would ascend the throne, since let's not forget her father became king just because her uncle abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson. But I think that's something that this show has that I really admire that maybe wasn't the case in Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, I think there are certain characters who you just know are bad apples like Mrs. Mm -hmm. O'Brien or Thomas. And here, every single one of the characters, I saw their point of view. So I thought there was a lot of built-in conflict. Might I suggest not being head of the church for a minute, or head of state, or the army, or the navy, or the government, or the fount of justice, or the whole damn circus, frankly. And be what? A living, breathing thing, a woman, a sister, a daughter, a wife. It's beautifully written and which leads us into Winston Churchill. Oh my goodness, Hollister. I have to say John Lithgow has won Tonys and Emmys and Golden Globes and I can't say I've ever really gotten it. I, I couldn't agree more. He was transformative as Winston Churchill. Now what 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 was the role he played? I should have looked this up, but I don't have to because it's always in your head. Uh, what was the role he played where he was a transvestite? Do you mean the world according to Garp? Okay, I remember thinking in that moment in time, gosh, he's really good, but I never thought about him again. And I've seen him over and over again, and he's one of those, again, those actors that you sort of don't think of, but then all of a sudden they're given the role of a lifetime, which this is, and he 
comes out as Winston Churchill, probably I would have to say, maybe we can do a list of six on Winston Churchill (laughs) movies. I think it might be the best one I've ever seen. I have witnessed scenes here today, the likes of which we have not seen since the darkest days of the Blitz. But alongside the suffering, I've also seen heroism. And where there is heroism, there will always be hope. Thank you. The way he does the walk and the stoop. And of course, Winston Churchill was known for his bon mots, so he gets the great lines to deliver. I know. Like when he's talking about that prime minister with King George, and he said, oh, yes, you mean the empty taxi that pulled up and Attlee got out? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but more than that, my very favorite scene in all 10 episodes that I watched mesmerized, by the way, is they've hidden from her, they've hidden from the queen that he's had two strokes. Mm-hmm. Both he and the rest of, of the team said, don't tell the queen, which, by the way, is not only against the law. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's totally not okay. But in addition to that, she felt it was a personal betrayal of her by him because mm-hmm. they had this, you know, relationship. And he's almost like the ersatz father figure <laughs> since she was right. so young when her father died. And she calls him in to make him accountable. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very difficult for her because she's still a very young queen and she really doesn't feel his equal. And so she says to he's standing there and the way he crumples in front of her with shame Mm -hmm. is one of the great moments on film. He starts to slump down. And she talks about how, you know, you've, you know, disappointed me in in two major ways. She goes back to a lecture she heard as a child about about the two arms of government uh, in England, which one she represents, which one he does. Dignity versus efficiency. I know. Mm -hmm. Amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And then she says to him something that I think is so apropos at this time in in, in in this moment in time. And she says, she asks him a question and, and she says to him, you know, can we build this retrust and, and, and what will ever happen? And she says to him, consider your response in light of respect for my monarch and for my, that my office deserves, not that which my age and gender would suggest. And, mm-hmm. and he, his response, which is not verbal, is so up to the... Uh, the genius of the words written for her. And one of the things we have to go to is the dialogue in this film really helps make it and takes it above the Downton Abbey dialogue. The Downton Abbey dialogue is entertaining. It's all of those things. But, and you know, and there's some great delivery of great lines in Downton Abbey, but not the same as this. Well, Peter Morgan, who writes and created The Crown, he is so good at writing these scenes where you're in direct conflict. So, for example, he was nominated for an Oscar for Frost Nixon. He was nominated for his screenplay for The Queen. He wrote The Audience for Helen Mirren on Broadway. He's certainly very familiar with the monarchy. But he does such a good job of he shows everyone is embattled from all sides. So, for example, before you see that, you've seen a scene already where Winston Churchill stands up for The Queen in front of parliament, where he gives that rousing speech about how 
she might be young, you know, but England has been reigned over by some fabulous queens. And he really endorses her, even at a time when his own party wants him to step aside due to his age and the power mongering amongst the rest of them. This new Elizabethan age comes at a time when mankind stands on the edge of catastrophe. It's just so well done. There's so many layers of intrigue. And then also the sister-sister relationship. Yes. Remember what Papa called us. Yes. Elizabeth is my pride and Margaret is my joy. But Margaret is my joy. And there's a moment when they both go back in their memories and they remember when their father sat them down and said nothing comes between sisters and of course something does come between them. Uh, and so if you haven't gotten through all the episodes, I'm not going to go there. But Since so much had come between him and his own brother. Yeah, you think? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, his brother was, you know, had all this responsibility and he said, too bad, you have to do it now. I, I wouldn't be a happy camper, would mm-hmm. you? <laughs> I know. And this is something that is also very different from Downton Abbey, where Downton Abbey, you have the Mrs. Patmores and you have all these characters who you can really root for. Here it's a very different dynamic with the characters because well, that, they're you know, all historical that, yeah. figures. So we all But know that's also who, fluff. That's also, they're fluff. See, I don't find it fluff. I find it a different world. Julie Miller in Vanity Fair wrote something that I thought was very funny. She said, the Windsors make the Crawleys look like common paupers. (laughs) I think it is definitely true that, you know, you've upped the ante in terms of prestige and wealth. It's almost a double-edged sword where you've got these historical figures, so you already feel a connection to them. But then it, it also adds that weight to the actors who have to recreate these roles because we're familiar with Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and Winston Churchill. And I thought they really carried it off beautifully in The Crown. They did. They did. They did. Now, the Duke of Windsor, can we talk about him for two minutes and his wife? Oh, Wallace Simpson. Okay, let's let's do it. Again, excellent performances. Everyone is outstanding in this. They really are. Now, by the way, it doesn't make the Duke look very good. And I guess, I don't know if anything ever has made him look good. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure if anything written about him or any him in it. But, but, uh, but never have I seen him portrayed with such um, caustic uh, nuance, if you will. And the letters he writes back to the Duchess... Uh, well, and she's not allowed, of course, to be in England. Um, really, that was sort of an easy way out to tell the story of what he was thinking while he was home. But it sure worked. You know, I hate it when letters are used in such an easy way that way, but this really worked and they didn't do it. You know, they could have done it so many times during this series, but they didn't. They do it enough, though, that it, it really does feel like a stylistic choice. And it really uh-huh. works for me because the oh, cinematography totally. is stunning, but the cuts and transitions are really masterful. So another example is when Queen Elizabeth is reading the letter from her grandmother while she's changing into funereal garb. So, you know, the grandmother's writing things like, don't let personal indulgences interfere with duty. And the whole time she's hearing her grandmother's words, the grandmother's drinking whiskey and smoking um, with an inhaler. I mean, they all die of lung cancer. And it's a great juxtaposition of the words and then also what's going on in the other scene. Such a good point. Who wants transparency? Then you can have magic. Who wants prose when you can have poetry? That's why we have family. 
to be links in a chain that can never be broken. Pull away the veil, and what are you left with? An ordinary young woman of modest ability and little imagination. But wrap her up like this, anoint her with oil, and hey presto, what do you have? A goddess. Okay, now, you know I'm always, I'm bringing the costs of things in to mm -hmm. discuss. Okay. So as I'm watching it, I, I hadn't looked up yet what they, what Netflix spent on this series. And, and I thought, and every, and at the, at the end of each episode, I kept saying, I don't care what you spent. It was worth it. Okay. Guess what they spent. I read that it had a hundred million dollar budget. 130. Maybe it's a hundred million pounds. Well, you know, Netflix is an American company, so we're going to be using U.S. dollars. <laughs> but $130 million spent, which is, you know, more, that's, you know, let's face it, that's $13 million an episode for 58 minutes. It's more expensive than some of the bigger movies that have come out this year. I just wanted to point that out. But very well spent. A lavish oh God, production. Totally. But anything yep. short of that, it wouldn't have pulled off the world. I couldn't agree more. I don't think. Now, what did you think of the juxtaposition between old footage and present day? You know, and then... It... They did it beautifully because when <laughs> they, they go did. back with these black and white yep. filters, you realize that when you see this unflattering portrait of Winston Churchill, they've really painted John Lithgow into the portrait. When you cut back to the newsreel footage that again, they go back to black and white. It's really Claire Foy and Matt Smith as Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth. And then perhaps some real black and white footage brought in. Very well done. Now the, the portrait, by the way, that, uh, that they indicate in the series was burned. Okay. Mm -hmm. was, by his wife you, secretly. You got to count on your wife, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Okay, painted by? By that modern painter, Sutherland. Okay, I've seen some of Sutherland's work. Wow. And this was considered, by the way, one of his finest... I mean, the fact that it was destroyed is really not okay, and it's one of the, it's the height of narcissism, let's face it. You know, uh, but it's considered one of the finest works that was ever painted by him. And if you go to YouTube and you type it in, you can see... The real footage of Winston Churchill accepting it, the painting at Parliament, and you really get a sense of how irritated he was when you watch it, but you also get to see the real portrait. And when you see it, it you know, now you have to keep in mind, this was back in the 50s, and it really is remarkable, remarkable. I, I didn't care for the portrait. I think if you don't like a portrait done of you, you have the right to destroy it. It's like an unflattering photo. I don't, I mean, I don't know that you destroy someone else's work, you know, just because you don't like the way you looked. And it. yet that artist can destroy every public work you've done up to that point. By, it's all about preserving the legacy. I think people who do it best are the ones that history remembers the best. The story that I really love of these iconic images of Winston Churchill's, you know that famous, famous photograph taken by Yusef Karsh? Is that the one with the uh, cigar in his hand? Where he went in to take the photograph and they told him, you know, you've got one minute to take the photo. And he thought he was going to have all afternoon with Winston Churchill. So he reached over and pulled the cigar out of Winston Churchill's hand. And Winston Churchill looked so irritated that's the minute he snapped the picture and caught that that look that we all associate with Winston Churchill of being a man who's so resolute and formidable. Yeah. Hollister, I want to give shout outs to some more of the actors. 
Matt Smith, who plays Prince Philip. I think he does a fantastic job. I don't like Prince Philip, never have, and now I know why. I think this portrayal <laughs> is so interesting that he captures his impatience, yeah. but also how astute he is that it was his idea to televise the coronation. Well, and how vulnerable he is, too, as a man, you know, back then. I mean, imagine it's, you know, one thing now, it's another thing back then. Do you know what I mean? You've taken my career from me, you've taken my home, you've taken my name. I thought we were in this together. And all the Queen's handlers are saying yeah. he can't walk beside her, he has to walk behind her. But it really reminded me of our podcast about that Danish TV show, Borgen, about Denmark's oh. first female prime minister. When you realize just what a toll it can take on being the spouse of this leader. That's true, but it's not like he didn't know. I mean, no offense. No, he was certainly royal, um, but very interesting because since his family had to flee Greece since they were deposed, he was raised as a commoner. So he had a, a much more common touch where, you know. Well, he did, but he had to know if he was going to marry the future Queen of England. That he was going to have to give up a few things here and there. But even when she apologizes to him and says, you know, I thought we'd have more time. I don't think either one of them thought she would be queen at such a young age. Well, nobody did. Nobody did. And, you know, if anything, this is a great advertisement for making sure nobody smokes, right? Oh, my um, goodness. Do you remember when that intruder broke into Buckingham Palace and he made it all the way to the queen's bedroom? Yeah, I sort of do and remember that. Do you remember how she got security alerted without even lifting an eyebrow? She picked up her phone and asked her security to send her up some cigarettes. She had offered the guy a smoke, and security knew that she was one of the royals who never smoked, which makes sense since that lung operation they portray in The Crown on her father. I think I I'm still recovering from that. Uh, yeah, good for her. That girl's a smart girl. And I thought, yeah. well, how calm. that It's kind of like when there was that shooting in Australia and Prince Charles didn't even break a sweat. Um, you know, sometimes you got to hand it to them. Uh, you know, her no hands on motherhood. You know, I, I did. I do feel a little badly for her. If she watches this, she's going to be devastated. I mean, she could not win because, you know, whatever she did, she did with the, you know, to me, the most important thing in anybody's behavior is intention. And if you misbehave with me, but your intention was to be something other than that, you know, I, I'm a good forgiver. Um, but if your intention was bad, I'm not so good. And her intention was always to do the right thing. Her, her struggle over the queen versus her as her own, as her sister, mother, daughter, wife, all of those things, you know, is so apparent there, but no matter how she views it herself, she's going to watch that and feel badly. I don't know. I think it puts a very empathetic face on being a monarch. Um, well, the, actually, the the things that are coming in, the the articles around her, the palace's response to it are devastating. Really? Yeah, especially around Philip, because you know she's always denied that there's ever been any hanky panky possibility, and it does leave the door so open. And who knows what's going to happen in the next, you know, the next uh, season of the of the series. And yet, their their marriage has got to be one of the longest running marriages. <laughs> Ever. Yeah, well, there's you marriages know? and there's marriages. But I'm not sure what that means. You but. know who plays Prince Philip? Prince Philip? <laughs> well, it's, oh, Matt, so funny. it's Matt Smith, and you loved his character. Not that you loved the movie, but in Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, he played Parson Collins. Yeah. We have to go back and talk about that film, which I thought was a bastardization of my my very dear Jane Austen. But really? it goes We're to show what a range Matt Smith has. 
he goes from this completely comedic role to putting, I think, a very personal face on, on Prince Philip. Yeah. No, excellent. Excellent. But, you know, even with these hard decisions, like you were talking about with Queen Elizabeth, you realize that everybody is pulling her in different directions. So as we said in A Royal Night Out, living in a palace can be a prison where you have these handlers who say you can't do anything differently than the way it's been done for a thousand years. And you realize her own mother, who used to be queen, is exerting influence. Her sister wants something different. The cabinet wants something different. Prince Philip wants something different. Not an easy position. Well, to be the, in. the thing is, and what they say to her is not that you can't. They say you shouldn't, and the decision is yours, which is almost worse than you can't, mm-hmm. because that means in the end she has to own whatever decision she makes. She doesn't get to say, "Look, I'm not allowed to." It seems that the only thing she's really gotten through the way she wanted them is a she got Prince Philip when nobody really wanted him as her husband, and putting the word "obey" into their marriage vows, where. Again, her but handlers. But she doesn't like, obey him. Um, but it's interesting she got that into the vow. Yeah, but everything but else, it seems like she's losing out to the handlers. It's the only oxymoronic thing about her because everything else, when she makes a commitment, she totally keeps to it. But in that particular instance, it was really interesting to me that she insisted that the word obey put, be put in there. But when he tells her to do something, sometimes she says no. Well, she has made all these other vows to yeah. country and, uh, yeah. and the church and the her conflict father. of interest this poor woman has it's exhausting is bigger than the major corporations in america you my wife or my queen i am both and a strong man will be able to kneel to both i will not kneel before my wife but your wife is not asking you to but my queen commands me yes i beg you make an exception for me no Another line that cracked me up is when Prince Philip looks at her and says, don't matronize me. (laughs) And here's the exciting part. I thought the series was in its entirety in this one set of 10 episodes. I had no idea that it was going to be a seasonal thing where they're going to carry us through continuing into the monarch next season. And I'm so glad because, and I'm so glad they could go so deeply into, you know, the first 20 years of her, of her uh, princessness and queenness because it really gives me an understanding of what's happening across the pond that I didn't have before. At least upstairs. But it is, there's a lot of material to mine. Right, exactly. It's funny because, uh, you know, our dear Queen Elizabeth was in the movie you liked better than I did, actually. Oh, A Royal Night Out? Yeah. I loved it. Do you know the director of that movie directed two episodes of The Crown? Julie and Gerald. I didn't know the director did that, but I will say that I'm so glad she got the part rather than the person who played uh, Princess Elizabeth because, you know, she is mesmerizing in this role. Her eyes are, nobody can match them in terms of, of being steely, but at the same time vulnerable, at the same time confused. And when she speaks to her own lack of education and wants to change that, made me sit up a little bit straighter and say, get your act together and you should always be learning and making sure that you're up to date on things. Because if this woman can take this extra time to become an educated human being, then so can we all. Well, it is very interesting that she really knew about horses and dogs, and yet the only thing they ever taught her about was the Constitution. Again, a great scene where she brings in that tutor, and he's asking how far she got in her education, and she realized not very far. And then she goes and demands that her mother explain to her why, and her mother said what every mother has said to every child in the history of the world, which is, Mm -hmm. look, I did my best, and I thought I was doing the right thing, and they didn't tell us to educate you. In fact, they told us not to, and just go bite me, because... 
my problem. And, and that she got more education than Princess Margaret. I know. You know, the, it's just so interesting. It, there's Every episode is chock full of things we could be talking about forever and ever. So if you don't watch anything else this season, you know, it is my fervent hope that you watch The Crown because... And also a shout out to, you know, to Queen Elizabeth, who I'm sure is listening. Don't you think she's going to listen? You know, she used to watch Downton Abbey and every now and then she would send a note saying, no, you used the wrong royal crest. Yeah, that is I don't not think what they... she's going to be doing that here. <laughs> but I want her to know that Hollister from ScreenThoughts.net thinks she's really cool. For the first time, I feel like I know her in a way that makes me like her. So, and I, I've wanted to like her my whole life. I think I've wanted to like her, and I never have. So I liked her when she did that bit with Daniel Craig for the opening of the London Olympics. Good evening, Mr. Bond. Good evening, Your Majesty. Okay. I still can't believe they got her to film that. Meanwhile, she pretended to parachute in. Majesty the Queen in this diamond jubilee year, proving that she certainly has a sense of humor. Hollister, another element that I love is the theme song. It's done by Hans Zimmer, who won an Oscar for The Lion King. He's been nominated for no fewer than eight other Oscars. I'm consumed with Queen Elizabeth. I have one question for you. Uh Uh-oh, is this this ending? It's time to end. What is it? What do you think the Queen's Uber rating would be? Okay, I think you're (laughs) such a bitch, and I don't want to talk to you anymore. That is, you are so cruel, and I don't want to talk to you anymore. Goodbye. We're over. Over now. She might be telling her driver which way to go. God. (laughs) 